Welcome back to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director at Privacy International. This week, and it's always a pleasure to have her, I'm back here with Caroline, our general counsel, to talk about a huge UK court win we had that confirmed that general warrants are illegal, setting constitutional precedent not just once, but twice. People listening will recall that we had Caroline on the podcast not that long ago. I think it was back in October when she was speaking about another court win. One of these days, and this sounds like a threat, like we're going to have you back one of these days when we don't win, Caroline, (laughs) uh, and you'll explain why we didn't win. Because it sounds like this comes close to just being pure celebration and celebratory uh, podcasting. And that's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is about asking the hard questions that we don't know the answers to. But for now, let's celebrate. (laughs) the phenomenal work that Caroline has led from the idea stage to the point of setting constitutional precedent. So maybe I'll stop talking and give Caroline a chance to talk to us about this case, starting with what the heck is a general warrant? Certainly, and, and good question. Thank you for having me here today, Gus. So what is a general warrant? A general warrant is something that the law has disliked for at least 250 years. And this is the idea, the decision maker who is supposed to approve the warrant, and in this case, in England and Wales, it's the Secretary of State, can delegate to whoever's going to execute the warrant. And in this case, it's intelligence officers, the decision as to who to search. And this is a problem because that means the person making the decision can essentially unilaterally potentially exercise their authority. So the reason this has been a problem for 250 years is it used to happen the way that, you know, again, often the secretary of state or whoever was in the executive at the time would say to police officers, go ahead. (laughs) I want you to find whoever published this really horrible, seditious pamphlet criticizing the king. Go out and find them. And then the police officers could essentially then choose to investigate whoever they wanted to under the authority of that warrant. And that led to a lot of abuse, which even led to damages back in the day. And a lot of people having problematic searches of their homes or problematic searches of their papers. So fast forward 250 years, we found out that these general warrants were again being revived and used in the context of computer hacking. (laughs) And we thought this could be a problem again, since computer hacking is such a powerful and intrusive form of surveillance, if there aren't really strong legal controls around who can be hacked, then we're going to run into the same unlawful intrusion that we had before, which is why we brought the case in the first place. (laughs) And so just to set this back in time, 250 years ago, the king and his authorities were basically issuing these warrants to allow arbitrary use of power, particularly in search and seizure. And what happened to stop that? So around that time, there were a series of cases that came to the English courts. And what those cases said and what the judges of the time said was that it's inappropriate to allow this arbitrary use of power, this this delegation of power that could lead to abuse. And you really need to have the main decision maker who and parliament is the body that decides who that main decision maker will be because parliament is sovereign here 
the UK and making that decision about who can be searched and and confronting the cost of who you're going to choose to search as well (laughs) in making that decision. So it's sort of a buck stops here. (laughs) The buck has to stop much higher up than at the individual officer. And so it was this whole series of a number of cases that happened in the 1760s, the 1770s. This was such a big deal that it even became part of the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution because general warrants were hated so much, especially by people who opposed the government, like the American colonists at the time, <laughs> that they they decided that this really needed to be a constitutional principle. And it also, through this series of case law in England, became a constitutional principle. And so if it became essentially a driving force and the solution to the general warrant problem was enshrined in the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, and courts in the UK essentially resolved the question in the 1770s, why the heck does a small organization on limited resources like ours have to fight the case 250 years later? Well, this is an issue that we face again and again, is because the technology evolves and law doesn't always keep up. (laughs) So, I mean, we we felt from the beginning that the prohibition on general warrants are a constitutional principle, they shouldn't be allowed. But of course, circumstances have changed greatly since 250 years ago in some ways, although not in others. And with the vast new technological capabilities, especially of the intelligence services here in the UK, they had the ability to search a whole lot more people to do it much more intrusively and much more effectively. And they, of course, see sort of strong national security threats they wanted to address. And so they argued quite strongly um, in response to our complaint that they felt the context was so different, this long (laughs) 250-year-old line of cases shouldn't apply. And the court disagreed, rightly so, in my opinion, and said, no, I mean, this is these are fundamental rights for a reason. The fundamental invasion of privacy, whether it's through hacking or it's through searching your home. And by the way, this case changed over the course of the five or six years we were pursuing it. And some of the hacking powers moved under a new law called the Investigatory Powers Act. But the um, legal power that we're litigating against still allows searches of homes too. And they said, even a search of a home, the intelligence agencies don't get free reign. They still have to, to follow the rules unless parliament says explicitly that this fundamental constitutional right can be changed and overridden, and that hadn't happened. We were around post 9-11 where governments argued, look, the rules need to be revisited because the world has changed. And that led to years of litigation, advocacy in parliaments and legislatures around the world to say, hey, no, things don't need to change just because you have the threat of al-Qaeda. Although while this smoke was still hovering after 9-11, you could understand that people might have felt that 250-year-old principles may need to be abandoned in light of the threat as it was articulated back then. But in this case, there was no al-Qaeda. This was just the reapplication of an old power in the context of technological change. What about technological change made their case even possible to articulate like they would have after 9-11 tried to say that the rules have changed? 
I think that in this case, it was actually more the change to, to the national security threat they were facing than the technological change that was driving their argument. They were saying that we still have terrorism. We still have other serious crimes that we're investigating. We need all the powers that we can to be able to engage in these types of investigations for national security. And the government tried to actually distinguish this current national security context where they were using all these new and intrusive powers from these 250-year-old cases. But that is actually very difficult to do, as the court recognized, because these 250-year-old cases, most of them were happening in the context of the national security problems of that time. (laughs) They may seem very different to us, but those seditious pamphlets that were being published at the time, that's exactly what today we might call those people terrorists, or maybe not, because (laughs) many of them may have had very valid points. But that's what the court has recognized, too, is that actually this context hasn't changed 250 years ago, there was acts of revolution going on. And the court said, that's not good enough. How opportunistic can they be to say the world is so much more challenging today than it was back then that we need to throw out the rule book? I don't get how they can get away with it. And so not being a lawyer, I'm trying to imagine when you're in court, what is the level of discourse. Are you are you having these grand discussions about principles and whether 250 years ago things were different? Like what what is the contest? What is the fight like in court? And do you wear wigs? <laughs> well, uh, the answer to the your second question is that our barristers do sometimes wear wigs. It depends on the court. <laughs> um, so that's not changed in the <laughs> 250 years either. But I do not personally, although I, I would love to because I'm quite the legal nerd, um, but also as a legal nerd. No, we do, in fact, engage in exactly this discussion. And in fact, I think everyone involved who are a bunch of other legal nerds really enjoy it, too, <laughs> because it really is getting into this question of principle. And that's why these are such fascinating cases, because when the technology collides with the principle, you start to see, as you said a few moments ago, that in many ways, the principles are still very valid today. And the concerns are still very valid, even though the technology has evolved. And so other than it's just it's a wonderful way for lawyers to spend their time debating constitutional principle. And I'm sure when you went to school, you, you imagined the day that you'd be able to do this. But. Why did this case have to be taken? Why, why again, does a small NGO like ours have to take a case like this? What was the drive? To put it more simply, you came to me and said, Gus, we have to take this case. And I'm trying to remember, other than being, of course, this is wonderful that we've won, that I could say, yeah, no, I totally green lighted that the moment you said it. But I remember actually being quite concerned. Why did you think that this case had to be brought? Well, this particular discourse, this idea that today's context was different with the technology, with the national security context, was really pervasive, especially in the intelligence agencies, not just within the UK, but all around the world. And we saw that with the Snowden revelations, it happening even before that, but it really came, especially for this particular case, came out in some of the documents around the way that hacking was being used in such an intrusive and widespread way. And so we said, well, hey, how is this even happening? We don't see the legal powers that are allowing these practices to go forward. And it's it's really problematic because it is undermining <laughs> these protections, both constitutional protections in the UK and, and human rights standards as well that have been in place for a very long time. And so if no one challenges 
this, <laughs> then these practices are going to become even more and more pervasive. And at the very least, what we need is better authorization and, and oversight, if not getting rid of some of these practices altogether. And so that was the really strong reason for taking the case is someone needed to stand up and and reapply this in this case, 250-year-old law to the modern age. Otherwise, the intelligence agencies who have very smart and good counsel themselves <laughs> would, would continue to argue for their legal interpretation without having that neutral decision maker, the court, giving us an answer. It's quite extraordinary. I wonder what's the next thing that as civilized human beings, we, we've taken for granted based on 250 years of practice that we'll next have to take. But one of our trustees is Ben Weisner and a valued source of guidance. He notes that the idea that there's such a thing called national security law is a recent phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so it was only, yeah, in the past, say, 20 years that you've had governments standing up and, and arguing that national security needs some kind of other treatment. And that's possibly related to the 250 years of just common practice that you don't have that. But it's also, I think it's fair to say that it's a relic of the Cold War, possibly the Second World War, possibly the First World War, possibly Louis XIV, the idea that there's an intelligence apparatus that operates at a different layer. And it's only in the last, say, 15 years that the intelligence apparatus of governments have actually gotten the scrutiny. Like the National Security Agency was often referred to as no such agency. Mm -hmm. It was only in the early 1990s that it became known in the US, let alone elsewhere in the world. And GCHQ, the UK equivalent, has equal, if not greater levels of secrecy around it. So in a sense, we needed to stand up to stand up for principle. But I guess we also need to stand up and say, whoa, what just happened that these institutions all of a sudden operate on a different plane? I think you're exactly right in in talking about the history. And yeah, and we actually had the opportunity to stand up as well, which was also your point. In fact, the very law that we are challenging here, the Intelligence Services Act of 1994, was the law that acknowledged the existence of GCHQ. And so this was the first time that the UK had sort of publicly acknowledged (laughs) this entity existed. Uh, And we couldn't have had these debates before that time, right? You know, in the past, uh, those 250-year-old cases, they were fought out because they literally involved physical invasions of homes or arrests of people where it was pretty obvious something was happening. (laughs) Whereas, especially, um, this is a difference for the modern technology. You know, a lot of this hacking, a lot of this mass surveillance can go on with no one knowing. You may be the target of it and you may never know if no action is taken against you or even if some action is, you may not know the basis. And so, you know, credit to the governments who have started to allow more transparency around the way that agencies are operating so that we can have these debates. But it's also why it's so much more important to make sure these safeguards are really strong. That's what separates us as an actor and the issues we work on from all the others that are equally important when it comes to curtailing the powers of the state and other powerful institutions, but we deal with the invisible. Mm -hmm. The invisible that is often possible to perpetrate a huge distance. And so accountability, even before use of power becomes even more important because you can't often take it as a result of the use of power because you don't even know if our computer systems have been hacked by an intelligence agency from some part of the world because they wanted to find out something that we had on somebody else. That's the nature of modern power today, isn't it?
And so you had a valid point. You came and argued your point, And then you go to court and you guys all argue. And that, to me, feels like it should last maybe about two weeks and then we're done and dusted. Why the heck did this take five years? <laughs> that is another good question. So we started this case back in 2015, actually, when the original complaint was filed before the Investigatory Powers Tribunal here in the UK, which is a special tribunal set up to oversee the intelligence agencies. And we brought sort of the, the base level, we don't see any legal power authorizing this type of intrusive hacking that we think you are doing, thanks to Snowden documents and other sources we had uh, suggesting that this was happening. The initial case of the IPT for a court case here didn't take too long. I think it, we got a decision in mid-2016 out of that case. But what happened after that is that we weren't happy with the IPT's decision. And so we wanted to appeal it to what we might call the regular or ordinary UK courts in a process called judicial review, where the UK courts can review another decision of a government body to make sure that it's legally sound. So they're not retrying the facts, they're just thinking about the law itself. The thing is that no one had done this before. And <laughs> the government's first argument to us was, you can't JR the IPT. <laughs> you can't just review the IPT. Here's a provision of this law called RIPA that says you can't do it. So nice try. <laughs> so the government was essentially trying to create a law to try to create a separate court of this tribunal. And that could hear complaints and do something about it. But then if they decided, as they often do in our cases, that there's no merit, then that's it, right? right? And so we were saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's this thing called the judiciary that's older than 250 years, <laughs> that when we have a concern, we should be able to be heard in court. And the government said, no, you're not allowed to take this to the court. We set up a special little court for you. Exactly. You're not allowed out of your little playpen, basically. Exactly. You wouldn't put it that way, but that's how I would put it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. That's not how I would put it, but that that is in sum <laughs> what they were saying. <laughs> and so this turned out to be a really difficult question because this, this question of ouster clauses within the UK, which is what this provision in the law was called, is quite a big constitutional deal because it becomes a question of can really parliament say that the UK courts, the, this other branch, the judicial branch, don't have a say over certain legal matters. And we had to go all the way up to the UK Supreme Court, which took us all the way until 2019, I'm, <laughs> yeah, to get an answer to this question. And ultimately, the UK Supreme Court agreed with us and said that, no, the way that Parliament wrote this particular ouster clause, they did not use clear enough language to say that ordinary UK courts don't have jurisdiction over these types of questions. So, in fact, you can judicially review a decision of the IPT. And they even went on to comment a little bit on the underlying case itself and say, actually, we think this case has a bit of merit here. Well, of course they would, because they're legal geeks, too. And debating 250-year jurisprudence is, is what they get out of bed for in order to go to law school. It's important, though, going back to the, the point I was making about national security law emerging as something, that 2019 UK Supreme Court case, for me at least, meant the government couldn't allow this separate court system to create its own special law as well. Like at some point, because of us taking it to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court got to say, no, we shall not have this separate regime of law in this little pen over there where we can let intelligence agencies do as they see fit. There is a legal system to this country 
and for any country, and that legal system is whole, and that means people have the right to petition to be heard when they have concerns. That's exactly right, and they were concerned exactly with that idea of having a specialized law developed that none of the other courts could review and that could be quite different. And in fact, now that we see this this judgment that we've just gotten, it would have been quite different because the IPT adopted the government's argument that the national security context is so different that this sort of more intrusive use of general warrants would be allowed and, and pretty quickly actually dismissed <laughs> the 250 years of case law in this context. And now that we've gotten into the ordinary court system, the high court has said, no, actually, it does still apply. The government screwed up along the way on this case. First, they argued against us being able to even take the case. And so we had to change or reestablish constitutional law in this country to say, yes, we have the right to take this case. And then recently, the government lost again. And this is on the substance of the case. Tell us about the decision from the court. Right. So what the court said is relatively simple, and it's essentially that this national security context doesn't make a difference in this case. The 250 years of law still apply because parliament didn't say they wouldn't. (laughs) So parliament is essentially the only body that could say these fundamental constitutional principles here uh, prohibiting general warrants will not apply. And the language parliament used in the law in question, the Intelligence Services Act of 1994, was not sufficiently explicit to overrule that fundamental right. Therefore, general warrants are still not allowed (laughs) with regard to to this particular power, at least. And then the court went on to say, and that means you can't have these certain types of warrants. Particularly, you can't have a warrant that says, for instance, anyone who we think is a member of this particular terrorist group, we can investigate. You can't just so broadly name a group of people without identifying the particular name of the person or the particular address where they're located. It needs to be much more specific, which was a really important aspect of the the statute and the law as well. But that's what the court has reaffirmed, because otherwise what you have is a general warrant where um, the, the people executing the warrant are the ones who are deciding who's a member, as opposed to the person signing the warrant, the secretary of state having to be the one who decides who's a member. And so, okay, we win. And litigation can sometimes be seen as very sexy. And I can say I've gotten a lot of messages from people around the world. And everybody thinks, oh, my God, this sounds like such a cool case. Aren't you happy? And they don't really get my response, which is, no, I'm just really fucking relieved. You know, this was five years in the making. And there's not just the risk that we could lose and basically allow the government to uphold its view on constitutional law into the future. But there was also the risk that if we lost, we'd have to pay a lot of money. That is, we, and this is why you and I have had many hard conversations over the last five years, Mm -hmm. whether it's about this case or other cases we take. Sometimes the risks are if you take a case against the government and you lose, you have to pay the government's legal fees. And it was it was like this sword hanging over our neck. And so it's important to understand, yes, we got to the UK Supreme Court and we were heard at the UK Supreme Court. But the reason we got to the UK Supreme Court is because we were forced to deal with the government on a procedural point and then we kept on losing. <laughs> and every time we lost, we'd have to decide, do we appeal and continue to incur this risk 
that we could have the wrong outcome in law and we could have the wrong financial outcome too. The finance sounds petty, but this type of stuff can kill an organization. That's right. That's right. And we're lucky here in the UK that we had a certain cap on our costs. You can get a cost capping order in this sort of public litigation, but even then the cost was quite high. Then that's why we had to keep having these conversations as we went up each step. So those are completely the hurdles that we face with litigation. One, we want to make sure it's a good case that we have reasonable success of winning, even though we know we're in these very novel areas most of the time. So there's not clear precedent. And then we also need to make sure that we can afford to do it. And yeah, these are not easy decisions, especially for a small organization <laughs> to make. Then there's also all the time and effort that, of course, we as the lawyers within the organization put in on the cases. And we have amazing, mostly pro bono counsel who also help us take these cases. And it's all their time time and effort as well. But it is very satisfying when, <laughs> when we do get a positive judgment. Although that's also to say that this is not necessarily the end of the road for this case, because there's potential government has until the end of this month to decide whether or not to appeal. So we might be going up again. (laughs) Well, if they decide to question, then we will absolutely fight and we'll fight all the way. But I am curious, considering it was five years ago and we were in a very different world. PI was in a very different state five years ago. Would you do it again? And in a sense, I'm also asking in light of all the questions and the, the celebratory remarks I've, I've received from people around the world, I feel like they're getting excited about litigation too. And they're thinking, oh, we should do something like this in our countries. Would you advise others try to take this? Because again, we are taking on an invisible power, which is hard to understand, let alone for jurists who might be from a different era. We are taking on incredibly powerful bodies such as intelligence agencies that in theory didn't exist until 30 years ago under law. We are taking law on a new journey into the technological era that didn't exist, say, 20 years ago. It's such a daunting challenge. And then, of course, there's the legal risk and the financial risk. And if you get it wrong, you could leave a horrible set of tools for governments to pick up as they see fit when the next time there's a crisis or there's a next time there's an opportunity. And so would you do this again? Would you advise others to do it again? And I guess if you do say, yes, you do this again, I want to know what the hell are you going to do next? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this particular case, yes, because I think we've gotten quite a lot out of it fundamentally that, that I would take this case again. But there's no denying that litigation is hard. And so, you know, every time we make one of these decisions to take on a case like this, we know that it could be a five, six, even 10 year investment. There are cases that go on even longer. And it's an investment of a lot of time, potentially a lot of money. And like you say, if you lose, if you don't pick your case well, then you can do harm too. So it's not a decision to take lightly whatsoever. And that's what I'd say to other organizations. On the other hand, if you do win, (laughs) and there are also, you know, rarely unqualified wins. Often we get, you know, we win in the sense that we, we win mostly, but there are still bits that maybe we weren't, aren't entirely happy with. But even those circumstances, you know, with a mostly win, it's it's great and it's very 
gratifying um, and it can have a lot of impact, but then it also has to be enforced. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily stop there with the litigation win either. Sometimes you need to make sure that you have your advocacy and your policy apparatus ready to go behind you. And sometimes further litigation <laughs> ready to go to, to try to enforce the judgment too. So I would say tread carefully for all these reasons making these decisions, but you can have a big impact litigation. So it's a tool to keep in your arsenal, assuming that you can <laughs> fulfill all those, check all those other boxes of the type of resources that you have. And which, especially for small organizations like us, is not necessarily that easy to do, <laughs> which is why we always appreciate our supporters' support. But in this particular case, what will we do next? Well, like I said, this case isn't over yet. <laughs> what other cases are we considering? That's a hard question that technology continues to evolve. There are lots of other areas where we could get involved, but I think we're always going to look for these big questions that hopefully will have impact in a lot of different areas, you know, certainly across, because we're an international organization, certainly across an entire country at national level, but hopefully also um, persuade a number of countries at, at a regional or international level to change their practices. As Caroline knows, we have a lot of hard discussions about the role of litigation and whether to litigate or when to litigate. What is interesting, though, about litigation, particularly in light of the 2019 case that we won at the Supreme Court, but now this one, too, while PI exists because of the generosity of our donors and because we're able to take cases because of supporters like people listening to this podcast, if PI ceased to exist in five years' time, the textbooks would still refer to the work that we've undertaken in the last five years. Like When we were taking the case of the Supreme Court, the existing jurisprudence was from the 1950s, like from the Suez crisis in the UK. Mm -hmm. And so maybe in 50, 60 years time when this is being litigated again, at some level, the textbooks and, and the lawyers are going to be referring to Privacy International. And that's a really beautiful thing. I struggle to imagine how we could continue to exist because I have to do the hard work of raising the money to make sure this organization exists. But equally, I have a hard time imagining how we can't exist in that period of time, in 50 years, 60 years time, because these challenges are not going away. This question of technology and change, governments being opportunistic and grabbing more power, secret institutions existing, accumulation of power through invisible means means these 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 levers and these concerns and these adversaries are not going anywhere and we need to keep on fighting them for as long as i can see but uh i, I gotta say caroline like you and the lawyers at pi over the years who've worked at this and are incredible the incredible relationships we have with incredible outside counsel who as you noted do this work pro bono we are just so fortunate to have these extraordinary minds and, and the willingness to take these educated and calculated risks. But I'm sure you enjoy the journey along there too. Absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean, this is, I think, what a lot of lawyers dream of doing <laughs> is, is dealing with these amazing cases that, you know, where 250-year-old legal precedent collides with modern technology and really not always. <laughs> this is definitely what I wanted to be doing back in, in law school. <laughs> so yeah, it was pretty fun. <laughs> Well, continue watching this space. And one of the areas of PI's website I'm most proud is how we developed a, a section of the site that represents all the litigation that we're doing, that will show 
all of the cases we're undertaking, all the filings that we did in each case, all the filings that we received in each case. So all the legal geeks out there can see the totality of the battles that we undertake on a daily basis. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. So go to our website and have a look. And if I can't say it again um, too well too often. Thank you so much to everybody for their support for allowing us to take this case. And if you do want to offer more support, you could always visit our donation website, which is support.privacyinternational.org. So yeah, go to our website to see our cases at privacyinternational.org. If you want to donate to us, go to support.privacyinternational.org. And Caroline, I love having you on this podcast and I look forward to having you back on this podcast. I can't guarantee it's always going to be at the back of a victory, but congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. You can like and subscribe to this podcast on whichever platform you use. It's also available via our website, as I said, at privacyinternational.org. The music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International. Thank you.